This weekend retreat with Father Joseph Fokker was held March 2nd to 4th, 2018 at Our Lady of Good Counsel Retreat House on the topic, The Bible Lets You Talk to God Better. These and other recordings are available at our website, goodcounselretreat.com. Good evening and welcome. It's great to be able to start a retreat uh, with Mass. On the other hand, it's kind of a handicap to start with Mass because at the beginning of a retreat, you'd like to give lots of um, you know, details and, and kind of uh, familiarize people. And I've got a whole sheet of like information to read, but I don't feel like the homily is a great place to do that. So I'm just going to give a little bit now, and when, that'll be enough to get you to the next stop where we'll, we'll do more of that sort of stuff. So when Mass is over... Um, if you need to run to your uh, room to grab a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in your drawer. It might look exactly like this. I'm not sure if we got like a good run on 1970s Bibles once upon a time and populated every uh, room. Because they look like the high school Bibles that we all had once upon a time. Um, but uh, actually, if you do, it's great. Then we can all have the same page numbers. But you don't have to. If you have a Bible you like, use that. But you're going to want a, a Bible. You might want something to write on. Yeah, you're allowed to use your phone as for taking notes and stuff. But we'll talk about your phones in a different way later. Um, and, uh, but you might want to be able to do something with that. And when you come back, we'll start with some other kind of general direction stuff, and then I'll give a conference, not super long, um, but we'll do that before doing night prayer, and we'll wrap up with that. All right. Um, at the start of a retreat, I like to recall something that Monsignor Nemitz said to me on a retreat as a seminarian uh, 15 years ago plus. He had a great image. He said, when people go on retreat, some people just stand on the brake, like they're waiting for the train to pass. You know, so you're waiting there, waiting there. So you're like, okay, I've stopped, right? I'm not moving. I'm not driving into the train right now. I'm, I'm stopped. You know, I, here's my weekend, Jesus. I'm on retreat. I've stopped. Um, he said, you know, some people go a step further, and they go ahead and put the car into park, right? Which you remember doing, you know, your dad doing when you get tired of waiting for the train to pass, you know, and put it in park and... A little more relaxed, a little more settled in, and, and they can, you know, you can, you can let your mind do other things when you're not having to worry about, you know, I'm going to start rolling into the train. Um, but Monsignor Nemitz said, a retreat, even if it's short, the goal should be to actually turn the engine off, to go ahead and go that extra step of not just putting in park, but actually turning the engine off. Now, I won't lie, through the stuff I talked through, I'm going to keep your brains running, and hopefully your hearts and your souls are running too. Um, but... It, in a certain way, this is a chance to make that choice, you know, I'm going to let this be a retreat. And as much as possible, if you can put your, turn your phone entirely off, or you can put it in airplane mode, or you say, I will only check on, you know, grandma and the kids once per day, you know, whatever. Um, if that's the thing you can do, more power to you, because that will give you a better retreat. We, the whole idea of a retreat is to get away with Jesus. So you have to get away to do that with Jesus. So I encourage you as much as possible to, to do that. As was announced in the, the title of this retreat, we're going to be looking at how the Bible can help you pray better. More on that in a little bit, but I think it's a place where, um, even right here in the Mass, we Catholics admit um, we don't always get the most out of our, our Bible, right? I mean, we're good with the Mass. We know all the parts. We don't even need the book, right? You know, we don't just stand, sit and stand and kneel, you know? Uh, we're good at those sort of things, but, you know, if you ask somebody, hey, what book was that from? You're like, 
It was a gospel. I got a one in four shot, right? You know, that's about where most of us are. And, and I will admit, I'm a Catholic. You're going to know very much how Catholic I am because even if sometimes I know the chapter, if you hear me reference a verse, I promise you every single time I looked up the verse before I announced it because I know zero Bible verses. I sometimes know chapters. But, you know, so Mass is a place that it's even a challenge for us to realize I can get more out of this, which is the most Catholic thing I do, which is the most standard prayer most of us have, which even if we have a prayer life beyond that is usually still kind of the baseline of our prayer, I can get more out of that if I understand and appreciate God's words better. Not just for what's read that, that Sunday or that weekday and, and the things we can pull out of that, or even knowing like, oh, I know a little more context, but like being able to pull out even things out of the prayers at Mass or connect things in different ways, like, oh, that name, you know, sounds more familiar. You know, people who have, you know, started to look at their Bible or, or maybe even gone to daily Masses or picking up more of the story through that, find themselves with each passing year when they hear that genealogy, you know, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph and his brothers. As they go through that, each year they're like, oh, I recognize another name. I got a new one. I know who Shealtiel is this time, or Zerubbabel. You know, like, and their pieces start to click more as the story comes richer for them. But we, we can benefit from that, and it's a very Catholic thing. Scott Hahn talks about when he as a Presbyterian minister was first visiting a Catholic church and going to a Catholic mass, and the people are just kind of like steamrolling through sections of, of the liturgy, and he's like, whoa, hold on. Like, do you even know where that's from? Do you know why that's a cool line? Do you appreciate, you know, the line about, you know, um, you know a sacrifice, you know, a perfect sacrifice, you know, from east to west, from the rising of the sun to its setting, and recognizing, like, that fulfills this prophecy from Zechariah that the Jews have been waiting, you know, 500 years for someone who can actually do the right kind of sacrifice. And we just zip through it, Eucharistic Prayer 3, you know, like, we just keep chugging. Um, one of the things that I think helps us really realize this is the gospel reading to Emmaus. I thought about using it because in a, a retreat you can change the readings. Uh, you're allowed to do that, but it's Lent, and I want to kind of leave the Lent things put. And it's also a very distinctly Easter homily or Easter uh, gospel. But on the road to Emmaus, what happens as they're walking? Right, Jesus is talking to the two. They're expressing their interpretation of scripture and how that had all gone wrong, the one who we thought would be the Messiah, who would restore Israel's fortunes, he died. And Jesus says, how did you miss this? How slow of mind and heart. And then he opened the scriptures for them and explained to them from the beginning all the things that had to happen, how the Messiah had to suffer and so enter into his glory. And they were told that then when they go to the house and, you know, he, they beg him to stay and he breaks bread with them. And then they, their eyes are opened in the breaking of the bread. And we as Catholics are like, ha ha, second mass of all time. Woo. Right? Like we were like, we catch the mass part. But what we forget is that then afterwards, after Jesus disappears from their eyes, they say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures for us on the road here? Right? So the scriptures set their hearts a-burning so that when their eyes were opened, they put it all together, right? He, he got them hungry, and then he fed them. And so the scriptures are, are, are not meant to be just this, like, kind of backdrop, you know, like, oh, we're Catholics, we should, like, hear some of the story. Like, no, they're meant to drive everything, our personal prayer life, our, our love of the Mass, our growth as people, um, our, our Lenten sacrifices will be richer if we can hear God's Word in that. So more on that as we go. But I mean, even just in terms of the, the little things of the Mass, we can get more out of it. You know, the person who 
looks at the scriptures and soaks in their Bible and, and just kind of lets it all mull around in their head, they have great moments of epiphany. One of my friends in the seminary, I don't know if he got this himself or he got it from somebody else, but somebody had this moment. They were talking about how you know, they were kind of spacing out you know, during the Eucharistic prayer and the bells ring and they're thankful, like, oh, there's the bells to remind me what we're doing here, right? And thinking, you know, kind of like, but who came up with that? Who thought, like, ring bells, that'll be the right thing? And, you know, I mean, it's good, it wakes you up, and especially in the old Latin Mass, if you couldn't hear certain parts of it, it would tell you, big stuff coming, right? You know, and so that was helpful. Um, but, but we also like it. Tonight I had a 515 Mass, I didn't have a server, so there was no one to ring the bells for me. And I think we all just felt it was a little different, you know. Sure, same host, same Jesus, elevated, but it was something different without the bells, and so this friend in the seminary was reflecting. He was like, yeah, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, though. Like, so here are the bells, and they're made out of metal. And metal is made out of rocks that are basically boiled down. And there's that malign of Jesus in Luke chapter 19 when they're going into the city on uh, Palm Sunday. And, you know, the, the people are waving their palm branches saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, tell them not to say that. Tell your followers not to talk like that. And he says, I tell you, if they're quiet, the very rocks will cry out. And my friend said, think about it. Like, literally, what happens every single Mass? The rocks cry out. That's amazing. I never thought of that. I don't think seven billion people thought of that. Somebody, though, caught that one time because they had the Mass alive in the heart and they had the Scriptures alive in their heart. We all know that the Holy Holy is part of, of the Mass. We all know that it, that it comes from someplace in the Bible. If we paid attention in our catechism classes, we might even remember that there's this moment where all the angels are singing, Holy, 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 Lord, God of hosts. And that's just an awesome thing to, to soak in. We might, if we really paid attention, we might know that it comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, when, when the, the throne of God seems to descend into the temple, and there's this moment where his glory fills the space, and Isaiah's freaking out, I'm not worthy to see you as the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. But even if we catch that, most times we don't know the next part after that, the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is part of Psalm 118. And what we really don't like, or don't know because we're Catholics, is that Psalm 118 is like the ultimate Easter psalm, and you'll hear it all sorts of places. But a person who kind of dives into the scriptures, who maybe does morning prayer, even if it's just on a Sunday, and gets to every couple of weeks hear Psalm 118, begins to recognize, we use this all over the place. This is like the Easter psalm. The psalm is all about how there's battle and danger, and he thinks he's going to die, and then he has salvation, in his mind, saved in battle, which leads to victory for the whole people. The idea that, that despite being surrounded by his enemies, he escapes by the hand of God. And then the line that literally we had in today's gospel, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the Lord has this been done. It is wonderful in our eyes. So the early church recognized Jesus, didn't just pick that out of nowhere. It's this great image that, that, they, that they could use, that, yeah, he was rejected, and yet God has placed that wonderful in their eyes. And then right after that comes this line, which in English is sometimes translated, you know, O Lord, grant salvation. O Lord, grant success. Which is one of those places where the English messes us up, because the Hebrew of that is like one of our four words we know. It's Hosanna. And you're like, oh. I know that one. Amen. Hallelujah. Hosanna. Yeah. Like, like I know that one. Um, but it it, it, it realize, that's what you're doing. You start with this image of the, the, the Lord in his throne come down to earth. Then you sing this Hosanna. And then you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This messianic image. You're like, oh, 
Somebody's about to come in the name of the Lord, and it's going to be God descending into his holy place, and he will grant salvation. It all comes together. Even one less one that you might not get to hear, unless your priest speaks pretty loudly. But um, you know how the priest, right before he washes his hands, does this long, deep bow, and he puts his hands down by the altar? And you don't usually get to hear what he says. Uh, but he says, uh, with a hun- contrite heart and a humble spirit, let us be received um, before the Lord. And, and we just hear that like, oh, that's a mass prayer. That makes sense. You're about to make the sacrifice. But for a person who knows the scripture, again, especially if they do even just morning prayer on Sundays, they recognize that as part of the prayer in the fire. Remember the three young men who won't worship the statue uh, in Babylon are thrown into the furnace, right? We all know that story because it's a great one from the Veggie Tales. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> we know the stories. We just always can't connect it. Um, and as, as they're in there in the story, after they have this, this moment of salvation, they recount, Lord, we have messed up in this way and that way and this way and that way. It's this giant act of contrition that they're, they're saying for the people in exile. And they have this line that one of them says, with a contrite spirit and a humble, a contrite heart and a humble spirit, let us be received as though it were burnt offerings of rams and bulls of ten thousands of fat lambs, which just sounds delicious on a Friday in Lent. Um, but it's a great image there because they're saying we have no place to do our own sacrifice. We can't offer you goats, sheep, bulls, fat lambs, anything. We got nothing to offer you, but we three will be our own sacrifice. We will give you contrite hearts, humble spirits, Lord, accept that as some kind of sacrifice. And it's beautiful that the priest does that on behalf of the people at that moment saying, yes, we don't bring anything that's a sacrifice. God gives us the wheat. God gives us the grapes. He transforms it into his son. We don't bring anything except for ourselves. We bring our hearts. We bring our humble spirits. But let that be received. And God's like, boom, I got you. Here, have my own son. Have Emmanuel. Have God with you. And so this is awesome moment. So we don't have to draw a line between scripture and sacraments or the idea of like, I'm a Catholic. I just know the mass, but I don't know my Bible. The two are mutually reinforcing. The person who had the moment with the bells probably was letting that fill in their idea of scripture. And the persons who are reflecting the other way are probably letting the scripture fill in their ideas at mass. They're self-reinforcing. So I'm giving you a lot of stuff right now, but what I want you to realize is throughout this weekend, I want you to let the scripture speak to you at your rate, at your level, in a way that's going to help you pray better. For some of you, that might be taking a lot of notes. For some of you, that might be taking very few notes and just kind of letting it soak in, and you're going to trust that I'm recording these, and I am, and then you can you know, maybe hear them later. But that's okay. Whatever it is, help yourself pray better. Pray the Mass, pray private prayers, pray prayers with the Blessed Mother by letting Jesus speak to you through the Scriptures and letting it begin to change how we get close to his Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, give us direction tonight. Give us direction throughout this week. Help us to be able to come to know Jesus better, and the Father better, and you better, through the working of Scripture on our minds and our hearts. Help us to truly learn how to pray. You are the one that St. Paul tells us is the one who really does the praying within us. So help us to find the right way to pray, the right words to pray, or even to pray without words, as you teach us in the very depths of our hearts. We ask all these things as we say, glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Okay. I think the first thing I need to say is I'm not really a retreat director. Uh, I kind of got suckered into this because they have people that call and they ask, and if you say no enough times, they don't stop. They just become more, more persistent until they basically make all the priests eventually give retreats. Not quite true, but I, I think I turned them down twice or I had conflicts twice, um, and so I felt like I had to do this one. But I really do feel... Um, that this is not my strength. Retreats are not my things. You know, I wasn't trained in like Ignatian prayer methods or spiritual direction or retreat giving. Um, I, that's just not my field. And if you think I'm being humble or modest, I'm not. Those who know me know that humility and modesty aren't my things. Like, I don't do those well. So I promise you, it's really that this isn't my skill set. Um, and that's kind of why I chose the direction uh, that I did here, the idea that the, the Bible lets you talk to Jesus better. Because I, I think that is a place that at least I, I can offer something of, like, let's dive in there. We want to focus on prayer. We want it to be an interior thing. But if I can give you some things that help you get more out of your scriptures and more out of, you know, your own prayer life because of that, then I feel like at least that's something that I, that I kind of can do. Um, that's a challenge for me because it, I have to constantly think, don't make it a class. Don't make it a class. Don't make it a class. Because that's my training is classroom teaching, and that's my instinctive place to go. And so I told you to bring a notebook to jot some stuff down, but... If that's not what you're here for, then don't worry about it. Um, but that's just instinctively how I think, like, write it down. And I, I started doing this seminary. It was taking notes on retreat, and then I would come back to them, you know, six months later. Because like, I know that priest had a good thought on Mary. What was that? And no one else could remember. They're like, yeah, that was amazing. What was it? Right? But being able to come back to it later was good. Uh, now, thanks to the wonders of technology, we can record these and we can share them, and that's, that's a great thing. Um, but, you know, I guess... Um, Receive it in the mode that is best suited to you. Um, find find the ways that, that you can get the most out of it. If that means literally, like, if you disappear from a few of these conferences because you're like, I'll do better on my own rather than listen to Father, blah, 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 that's okay. Um, it's your retreat. You paid the money. Um, you, you make the best retreat you can, and I'll try and fill in the gaps uh, where I can. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about, like, ways in which... Um, Scripture can be cool, and it can open up our prayer life. Um, do you remember in the uh, Gospel of Mark? If you, do we all have the same Bible? Do we figure that out? Do we all have this guy? No. Okay. Okay. Well, um, that'd been handy if people are not quick Bible turners. You know, those those kids who are really good at CCD and and Catholic school for like finding the Bible verse will be in better shape. Some of you might just have to you know listen closely. Um, I'm going to be in Mark chapter two right here. Um, so if you find Mark chapter 2, verse 18, that's where I'm going to start the, the reflection here. Mark is a great gospel because it's short, and it's fast, and it's power-packed, and it's just one thing after another. And it gives you, um, it, it's, a, it's a good way to get a quick digest of the story um, with, like, uh, all the, the key points. And so already in chapter 2, you've got this, this debate. So Mark chapter 2, um, verse 18 and following, you've got the great question where they ask about, you know, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, the disciples of John the Baptist fast, why don't you fast? And Jesus doesn't answer them. Kind of a classic move, right? What does he say? He said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then he throws in these two weird metaphors. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth to an old cloak. If he does, its fullness pulls away, the new from the old, and the tear gets worse. Likewise, this one we know better, likewise, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, this wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skins are ruined. Rather, new wine is poured into fresh wineskins. So, I want to suggest that one way we can read this, and that's one thing you'll learn, is that every verse of Scripture has 45 different ways to read it, right? There is no canonical way to read it. Even in places where the church defines, it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this, and it does include this, that doesn't mean there's not other things around that, too. You just can't go into that heresy or that heresy. That's the church's job. Um, So when we hear this, I think it fits really well here with, okay, so I'm on retreat. I'm trying to take in some new wine, right? I'm here to let the Holy Spirit speak. I'm here to uh, let my heart speak to God through the impulse of the Holy Spirit. I'm here to get some new wine into me. Um, But Jesus warns us that if you try and put new wine into old wineskins, you're going to get a burst, right? Because the old wineskins have already stretched last year when you put in last year's vintage. And since then, they've been used, and now they're dried up, and, you know, they're, they're, they're worn in that way. And if you put in the new wine, and it ferments in there, it's going to blow that thing out, and all, both the skin and the wine are going to be ruined. You need a fresh wineskin to receive fresh wine, and it can then stretch and be supple with that. So, in a sense, one thing we're asking for on this retreat is for the Holy Spirit to make us and our hearts and our minds new wineskins, young, supple, fresh, flexible wineskins that can take in new stuff. And they might stretch us a little bit, and that might cramp our style a little bit, and might not be our normal, you know, sort of shape, but that's okay, right? That if, if there's one thing that Mark's gospel is good at, at helping us realize, it's that Jesus comes, he got them very uncomfortable, and some powered through that, like Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, John 6. Um, And others pushed back, and even if they didn't just walk away, they literally then went and, you know, collaborated with the Herodians and looked for a way to kill Jesus, as we heard in today's gospel, right? That they knew that Jesus was talking about them. They knew that Jesus was calling them out. They knew that they were being called out for not hearing drinking the new wine, and that Jesus was saying, yep, and it'll be taken away from you. You're the builders. You reject the stone that I am. My father will make me the cornerstone. You will be on the outside, and literally the kingdom will be taken away from you. And we can, we got lots of meanings that that can mean, but it's just, I mean, it's a hit right there to, to hear that. So we're looking for new wineskins, Right? So we're trying to make ourselves better disposed to receive uh, new stuff. And, and that's a place to, to, to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit uh, to do that for us. Part of that, what, what plays in there, is just to let ourselves read Scripture or hear Scripture new and let it surprise us. It's, it's cool to, when, when Scripture can, can surprise you. Sometimes that's literally just like the tone of voice with which we read. Um, this last Saturday... My parish had first confessions, and we have a scripted first confession script. And um, we do uh, Luke, here I go, Catholic guy. Uh, it should be Luke 15, but I'm going to confirm that because not a Protestant. Uh, yeah, Luke 15. It is. It's Luke 15. Yep, I was right. Um, 
So at least for six days, I can remember a scripture verse. So uh, Luke 15 is the parable of the lost sheep. Perfect for little second graders going to their first confession. Um, but like we always read the lost sheep parable and, all the, and almost everything else really seriously, right? So, you know, Jesus says, um, you know, right there. Because um, they're asking, why does he welcome these sinners? So right there in verse 4. What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? And we're like, yeah, Jesus, who wouldn't do that? But that's insane. Like, we should recognize Jesus is using humor here. He's using irony, right? You know, Jesus, you could probably almost see, like, the curl in his lip as he says, yeah, what man among you wouldn't, after having shanked his tee shot into the lake at the golf course, wouldn't then leave his... Um, his golf clubs behind him and kick off his shoes and dive into the lake to go rescue the ball, right? That's what he's saying, right? He's, he's the, the what man among you is, are any of you dumb enough to go do this? You'd have to be bad at economics to think that it's good to leave my 99 obedient sheep and go find the one stupid or willful sheep, right? And leave them in the desert, I mean, it's one thing to leave him in a pen and hope that nobody, like, cheats you, but to leave him in the desert to go find the one that you don't even know where he is, that's idiotic. And that's Jesus' point, that the love of God is irrational at some times. Like, the, the just saving the unjust, that God would offer up his son to save a disobedient slave, as Paul would give us in Romans, like, like that's a bad idea by every logical sort of sense of things, and yet he does it anyway. He's using humor and a twist of irony to make us go, oh, yeah. That's, and that's a different sort of thing. Uh, I, I tell the, um, I sometimes do the, the lecter and acolyte classes, and, um, and I've also done the classes for uh, women who are readers, even if they're not uh, lectors. And I, and I tell people, um, read scripture like you're reading to first graders. If you feel like you're overdoing it, if you feel like you're being like, um, like your voice is too much, you know, uh, like, and then he said, you're probably about right, because we all have this instinctive, like, I'm in church, control it sort of thing. But, like, think of the difference of, of you know, some of these things. Flip to John 14. We hear this in Easter. We hear this in, um, in, at funerals. John 14, it's at the Last Supper. Uh, it's John's gospel, so, like, he's getting uber deep. And let me see if we can find the verse that I want to tell you, because I'm a Catholic and I don't know the verse off the top of my head. Okay. Um, so, very first verse of it, chapter 14, right? So, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? And I will go and prepare a place for you. And I will come back again and take you, with, take you to myself, so that where I am you also may be. Where I am going, you know the way. And we just usually read that and the next line in the same voice. Where I am going, you know the way. He's like, you know, Google it, right? Where I'm going, you know the way. This, you'll be fine. And Thomas, you know, poor Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas the doubter, right? Thomas is half the time the only sane one in the bunch, 
right? Thomas, why is he a doubter? Because he's rational. Because Thomas is a thinker. Because Thomas works things through. Thomas was, Thomas was probably like the one guy that had a real job. Not one of these fishermen guys, you know? Like, he's like the one guy that actually, like, got paid for thinking stuff through, you know? Um, and because, you know, he's the one, I mean, I mean, he has his moment. Like, it's reasonable, you know, we'll talk about this later. It's reasonable he said, yeah, the Messiah's dead. So that means he's not a Messiah. So unless you're going to show me his body walking around again and I can go pokey pokey, I'm not buying it. That's a reasonable sort of thing to say in first century Judaism, right? But instead he gets the poor label, right? But so here Thomas has a very reasonable question. Thomas said to him, and think of how we usually read this versus how I'm going to read it. Thomas said to him, Master, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Right? He's not mad, but he's definitely frustrated. Right? Like he's like the person who's like, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on. Give me the address. I want the address. I didn't catch that. I, I, no, don't use landmarks. Address. Right? And but think about it. It gives Jesus this great moment. Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. We see it on uh, greeting cards. We see it on billboards. I am the way, the truth, and life. Jesus Christ. Right? But in context, that's not what he said. He was asked, Master, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. Period. And the truth and the life. Feel the difference there? Like he's answering his question. Thomas asked a reasonable question, but Jesus said, yeah, but... Like, Thomas, figure it out. I'm the one. You've figured out. You've stuck with me through everything else. Like, I'm giving you me. I am the way. Look a little farther down there. Um, Philip. Oh, Philip. God bless Philip. Philip's like that, that kid in kindergarten who always raises his hands and always has the wrong answer, but he's just adorable anyway. Um, God bless Philip. Um, so he, you know, he's literally, Jesus just says, verse 7, If you know me, then you will also know my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Master, show us the father, and that will be enough for us. Again, Philip's like the guy that, like, parrots back what the teacher's saying but doesn't really understand it, right? You know, like, yeah, the father, yeah, show us the father. That'll be great. And you could almost hear Jesus' hand smacking his head where he says, Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you for so long a time and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, I'm helping us think about how we talk about this and how we read it and how, what our brains do. But, like, if you then take that to prayer and be like, okay, Jesus is working overtime. He's like, he's got hours, now maybe minutes, to get important information across to them. And he's going to dump some heavy stuff onto them in these next three hours. But he's like, whoa, if you guys don't get it that I'm the way to the Father, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we need to like literally go back to day one in Galilee and try this again. Because he's like, if you get one thing before I leave tomorrow, it's that I'm from the Father. I'm doing this to get you to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The whole point was to get you to the Father, right? And so, like, he, he's, when you put it in that sense and kind of think about it, he's putting everything on this point. And he's like, I'm not going on in this conversation. No more theology until you understand that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the path to get to him. Just follow on this path, and I'll get you the Father. You're like, Oh, that is what he said back on chapter one. 
that he's coming to show us the way to the Father. So that's just an example there. Another one that goes with that, I won't have you flip just for the sake of time, but almost the exact same thing happens in John chapter 11 when Lazarus has died, Jesus shows up late, Martha loves Jesus, but she's a little bit of a scold, and so she says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, don't worry, Martha, he will rise. And Martha says, in the most beautiful line of faith, she says, I know he will rise at the resurrection on the last day. Remember that, because we're going to come back to that point. That Martha does believe in a resurrection, but only on the last day, like other Jews of her time. And Jesus' response is, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Again, we see it on Easter cards, but we don't realize he's answering a question there. That's not just a floating Jesus statement. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and life. No, he's answering the question when she's like, I know, I know, if we just wait to the end of time, he'll be back again. And he's like, no, Martha, I'm coming to do something different today. Things change today. Something that's never been done in all my other miracles happens today. And why? Because in five days, I'll be on the cross, and you're going to need to remember this. She won't, they won't either, but he's trying to get it across to them. So, like, those are some things where, like, there's stuff in there that, like, if we let it hit us, can be great meditation fodder and take us to whole new places. I'll say right now, one of the most important things that that you can have as, as a Catholic is a pile of pencils that you can mark up your Bible with. Go get the really nice mechanical pencils uh, from Bic, five in a pack, you know, and put them in your Bible, put them in your, like, little zipper pack, put them everywhere, because you want a good, sharp pencil at all the time so you can write in the tiny little margins and underline and stuff like that. It's worth it for the two bucks to get good mechanical pencils. You've probably seen before that picture of, like, a Bible that's, like, falling apart. It's got um, marks everywhere. It's got um, uh, highlighters everywhere. And it says, um, if you see a person whose Bible is falling apart, they probably aren't. You've probably seen that before. The person who's dove into their Bible and, and, and marked it up and read it up and, and highlighted it and, and, and just devoured it, that person's not falling apart because their Bible is, because it gets that kind of a workout. So, so as a Catholic, you are allowed to write in your Bible, and you should. Right? And if you have to get a second Bible, you know, if you want to get one of the hand-me-downs from the schools going out of business and get one of those and mark it up, do it. I have a, a, a soft-cover one-year Bible that, um, that I just filled with writings when I was in my deacon year as a priest. I was like, I'm going to do the entire one-year Bible, and every single page is just covered because I finally had eight years of stuff to, like, fill it up with. But, like, that became, you know, the place where I was like, I can mark this one. It's not the nice one from my mom that has our genealogy in it. You don't want to mark that one. And it's not this other nice one that has a really nice cover. You know, this is my beater Bible, but it's really my Bible because I put me in it too, in my thoughts. And then I lost it for a year and freaked out because like all my homily thoughts for being a priest are in that book. And then it came back because St. Anthony. So, um, so where do, where do you start tonight? Because tonight you got some quiet time. Hopefully you're turning the engine off. Hopefully, before you go to bed, you can get a little quiet and, and, and talk to Jesus or me. Um, I'm going to give you a couple options, especially if, if you're already a Bible person, do whatever you're used to. Wherever you go and, and find stuff there, that's great. If you're doing a one-year Bible thing, excellent. Keep up with that. Um, but if, if this is kind of a new thing, a couple options. And these are things that you can do through the whole weekend if you're just looking for a place to start. I mentioned Mark. He's got the action-packed short gospel that takes you through the whole story at a good clip. The Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. 
Matthew and Luke tell the same story as Mark, just with way more detail and, and way more reflection. Um, but, so don't start with them. Start with Mark or John. Uh, and if you get a chance, try both. Most of us don't ever experience what it's like to sit down and read an entire like, book of the Bible, and you're not going to have enough time to do that now. But to even over the course of three days, work your way through 16 chapters of Mark, that's not crazy. And you might be really surprised at how much the story is different when it's not paragraph, paragraph, little story, parable. Like when you start to realize, like, whoa, that all happened in one day. Or when you realize as soon as Jesus did this move, they started doing this stuff, all of a sudden you see the whole narrative in a cool way. Um, if you're ready to try something other than a gospel, and you want to maybe like try, you know, go out into the deep waters of Paul, Philippians. Philippians is short. It's four chapters. It's got all your favorite killer lines, like all the ones like you know you know them, but because you're Catholic, you don't know where they are. Philippians. Um, and, and I'll actually give you some other Philippians stuff later on this week. There's a cool meditation we'll do with Philippians 4. Um, so, but that's a great place. Also, Philippians were Paul's favorite people. Like, Paul, like, lights up the Galatians. He doesn't even, like, give them a greeting, right? Like, he, and he doesn't give them a blessing. Everyone else gets, like, a greeting and a blessing. Paul, like, skips that and just torches them from line one. Um, Corinthians, he gives them a little more uh, lead-in, and then he starts complaining about them. Romans, he doesn't know them, so he has to play nice. But Philippians are like, you're my heart. I love you people. Oh, you took care of me. Every time I ever need somebody to point to as a good example, it's you. Philippians are that kid in class that the teacher's always like, I see Martha's doing her work quietly. That's the Philippians. Um, but, but he really does, because he saw them suffer, because they suffered and they suffered with him, he has this affection for them. And so if you're looking for encouragement, encouragement, Philippians. If you're looking for depth without like brain-crushing Romans kind of like theology, Philippians. Also in the same vein, first letter of John, so that would be after the Pauline uh, letters, you've got like the two letters of Peter and the three letters of John. First John has, again, some other great lines you probably know, and it's cool to reflect John is now an old man, and he's writing about people who didn't know Jesus being like, but I was there. Like, I'm not going to give you all the details. That's what my gospel is for. Check it out on Amazon. Uh, he's like, but let me tell you in this, like, little, like, TED talk what it was like. And that's what First John is. And it's really cool. He has a few weird things, like the whole water and blood and spirit part. I don't even understand that. And I went to theology. Um, let's talk about some Old Testament options. Um, Psalms are amazing. We're going to talk a lot about the Psalms this weekend. Um, if you're looking where to start on the Psalms, there's 15 Psalms that are called the Psalms of the Ascent or Ascents. Um, sometimes they're called the Gradual Psalms because gradus is stairs um, in, in Latin. Um, and they're literally the Psalms that you would sing and recite on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, in fact, literally the first one is talking about, you know, I rejoice when I heard them say, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Um, and so imagine this is what you would sing or chant as you're, like 12-year-old Jesus going from Nazareth up to Jerusalem. And they were kind of, uh, you know, instead of like 99 bottles of beer on the wall, this is what, that, what they would do. And they like psyched you up. They were like your pilgrimage music. You're on the bus, you're going to World Youth Day. Sure, you have to wind through this country for a long time, but like you hear these songs and they're getting you excited and they're, they're winding them up. They're some of the most accessible song, psalms. They have really brilliant imagery. Um, they're fairly short, each of them, so it's kind of like three stanzas and it just kind of like boom it clicks um there's some great ones um if you're ready to try a prophet um try isaiah 40 to 55 that's the book of comfort 
Um, and there's some really cool things in there um, just with um, reflecting on, on like, that, that's the good stuff of an Isaiah, the stuff that's not too hard, and you're like, oh, I know this. Um, and then finally, if you want to try, like, a, a different kind of um, uh, book, um, Ruth or First Samuel. They're good narrative books. Um, I'll just be a chauvinist for a second. The gals really seem to like Ruth, and the guys really seem to like First Samuel. A lot of killing in First Samuel, a lot of wars and Philistines and stuff like that. Lots of, um, you know, uh, cool family story, uh, dating story, marriage story in Ruth, and a baby story. Um, so there's lots of good stuff there. You can also check out Proverbs. You can't read Proverbs straight through. It's literally like 500 aphorisms. But a little dip of your toe into the Proverbs here and there can actually be a good little, a good little break there. So those are just places to start for, for tonight. We're going to go deeper to other stuff tomorrow, but I just want to give you that. Um, and let me give you one last thing as we, as we finish this. The psalm you're going to hear tonight is Psalm 88. And this might be a thing you want to focus on, too. Psalm 88 is the only psalm of all 150 that doesn't end happy. And that's why it's on Friday night prayer, because you're in the tomb with Jesus. Every other 149 is either happy all the way through, praise God, hallelujah, literally, um, or even if it's a lament, it ends happy, or it has a swing up. You know, um, you know bad, 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 but I know the Lord will save me. 88 doesn't. It goes all the way down. It is the Good Friday psalm, but you do it every Friday in in night prayer. So even the idea of the fact there's one psalm and one psalm alone that just leaves you going, it's literally a psalm of despair. It literally ends on on a minor key. And the fact that that's in there is fascinating, that one and one alone does that. So that could be a great thing to focus on, to just be like, why does God write this through his messenger? Or why does God allow this to make it into the canon of 150 psalms? And is there something I need to hear from this psalm? Is there something I need to think about in my own life or about Jesus' life? What do I need to get out of there?